This is the Christian Life Center podcast. Here at CLC, we are messengers of hope, where we believe in taking God's message of hope everywhere we go to everyone we meet. From wherever you are, be encouraged by this week's message. Thank you, Pastor Tom, and good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to Mark chapter 11? Mark chapter 11, we're going to begin looking at verse 12, but before I take you to the text, let me take you back to the end of the 1800s. It was about the year 1890, and the cricket team from Australia was going to England to play a match, an international level match against the English team. The Australians dominated that match so completely that a journalist in the United Kingdom said, British cricket is dead and buried, and all that remains is to send the ashes back to Australia with them. Now, if you're a cricket fan, you know that when England and Australia play cricket, they play for the ashes, and it comes from this incident in the late 1890s. One of the cricket players on that British team was called C.T. Studd. If you know that name, he was a famous missionary. He was one of the Cambridge Seven who left great fame and fortune and went to work with Hudson Taylor as a missionary in China. After a few years in China, C.T. Studd moved back to the heart of Africa, started the Heart of Africa mission, started something called the World Evangelization Crusade, and was a very, very radical missionary for Jesus. Now, I don't endorse everything that he did or lived for, but I do appreciate a society he started, which was called the DCD Society. He brought, after World War I, a bunch of colleagues together. He said, the world is wicked, the times are treacherous, and we need to devote ourselves to Jesus and taking the gospel where the gospel has not gone. And in his own style, that DCD society, they made badges, they sewed it on their clothes, stood for this. Don't care a damn about anything but Jesus and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, C.T. Studd had something that I call apostolic nasty. And that's the title of my message this morning. <laughs> apostolic nasty. Now let me define it for you because I think maybe a sports analogy can help. Have you heard of Michael Jordan? You know that name? Tiger Woods? Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Tom Brady, Larry Bird, Tiger Woods, Muhammad Ali. You know all these names, right? What made them win multiple championships? At the level of professional athletics, everybody's awesome. Everybody's an incredible athlete. They all have the same coaches. They have the weight rooms. They have the private jets. They have the physiotherapists. They have all the opportunities of the other. But what made Jordan and Bryant and Woods and Brady and Bird, what made them excel over their colleagues? They had a little bit of nasty. They weren't just going to win world championships. They were going to beat your butt in practice. They were going to beat you at tiddlywinks. They were going to beat you first in line to the bus. They were going to take your lunch money and enjoy doing it because they had a little bit of nasty. 
I think it's time that the church got our nasty back. I'm not talking about something that is gross or disgusting or yucky. I'm not talking about the impolite rhetoric of our day. Here's how I define apostolic nasty. A consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all nations. Not a carnal edginess, not a selfishness, not an arrogance, not a hubris, not talking about polemics, not talking about politics, a consecrated edginess that fixates on Jesus, the worth of Jesus, and his glory amongst all the nations. And I think we can make a case for this from the scriptures starting with Jesus himself. Mark chapter 11, verse 12 to 20 is the story. I'm just going to relate it to you. I won't read it. It's the last week in the life of Jesus. He has entered Jerusalem in triumph. He is flint faced marching towards the cross. His mission in this age of mercy is to make provision for the sins of the world. The age to come will begin on the day of judgment. But now in this age, mercy is offered to all of the nations. This is bursting in the heart of Jesus. He knows what he's going to do. And on that last week, he enters the Temple Mount. And you might remember how the temple was constituted. The center was the Holy of Holies. Only one man, the priest, the high priest once a year. Then the holy place where the priest would minister. Then the court for the Jewish men. And then the place for the Jewish women. And then the most peripheral part, the largest part of the Temple Mount was called the Court of the Gentiles. And God had ordained the court of the Gentiles that all the nations could come and meet with Jehovah. The Greeks were welcome. The Romans were welcome. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they were all welcome in the court of the Gentiles. But when Jesus, bursting with missions fervor, enters the Temple Mount, what does he find in the court of the Gentiles? It's become a market. And there's buying and selling. And I don't know what your picture of Jesus is, but he wasn't white. He didn't have feathered hair. He didn't walk around with a little lamb on his shoulder all the time. He was the Mediterranean God-man, and some things made his blood boil. And here we see Jesus angrier than anywhere else in the Bible. And he's knocking tables over, John says. He's driving them out. It is physical. It is visceral. He is so upset that there's no place for the nations that he goes postal, if you'll allow that expression. He is angry. And he's throwing people around. And he's driving them out. And he quotes Isaiah 56. Don't let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. Don't let the foreigner say, there's no place for me in God's house. For even there, I'll give them a place better than sons and daughters for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations that's apostolic nasty if anything gets in the way of the nations being reached Jesus goes after it what's interesting in the gospel of Mark is what's called a sandwich because when Mark wants to emphasize something. He puts it in a sandwich of two stories. So he begins the story of the fig tree. Jesus cleanses the temple. And then he closes the sandwich by showing that the fig tree was cursed. 
And theologians tell us that these two stories have the same point. If the institution of God is not fulfilling the purpose for which it was created, he will cleanse it, curse it, and shut it down. The temple has not functioned in its sacrificial form as it used to do. The fig tree dried up. If the church does not accomplish the mission of God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, he's going to shut us down. It's his temple created for his fruit amongst all the nations, and we have an obedience to render for the glory of Jesus globally. But let me ask you one question. What's in your temple? What's in your computer? What's on your phone? What are you watching on your Netflix? I'm not talking about getting nasty with anyone else or criticizing other people's efforts or ministries. What's in your head? What's in your heart? What's getting in the way of the glory of Jesus globally? Whatever that thing is, you got to go after it. You got to cast it out. You got to cut it off. That's apostolic nasty. Now lest you think that this is just the exceptional one-off Jesus, go back three chapters to Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 38. Jesus takes his disciples on a missions trip. He takes them to Caesarea Philippi. It's 30 kilometers north of the Lake of Galilee. It's off the beaten path. This is not a Jewish town. This is a pagan town. It is an immoral town. They kill their children. They throw them into a pit in a cave on the edge of town. They had a law on the books. At one point, you couldn't even walk in the main street without being naked. There was all kinds of sensuality, immorality, and violence. And Jesus stands in front of that cave euphemistically called the gates of hell and he says to his disciples on a missions trip in a pagan town I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it there is no town there is no place there's no pagan operation that will not be penetrated by the gospel and the disciples are excited yay Jesus this is fantastic we're with you all the way you are the Christ the savior of the world and he says yes indeed and on Peter's confession he follows in the very next verses and says and in order to accomplish the mission I must go to Jerusalem I must suffer I must be rejected and I must die and Peter says oh no Lord that will never happen to you and if you look at the text, Jesus first looks at all of the disciples and then he turns to Peter as to include all of them in what he says next. And he says to his own disciple, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. How's that for member care? If anything gets in the way even in the disciples of Jesus, of his mission to redeem all the nation, he calls it Satan. Apostolic nasty. A consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all the nations. You see, in that passage, in those verses following, Jesus says you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross, die daily. It's not enough to die for Jesus 10 years ago. 
It's not enough to deny ourselves last week. This morning, how did you deny yourself for the sake of the nations? Today, how will you carry your cross for the sake of the nations? There's a very interesting verse in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, which you know very well, and most of us appreciate the first two clauses, don't know what to do with the third. I want to know Christ, and we say amen, and I want to know the power of his resurrection, and we say amen, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, and we say, oh my, what do we do with that? What was the context? of the fellowship of his sufferings. Why did Jesus suffer? For the redemption of the world. And there is a knowledge of God that cannot be attained in an air-conditioned church or a Bible study or an armchair in your living room smelling candles and listening to worship music. There's a knowledge of God that can only be known when we leave home and go to the uttermost parts of the earth and suffer with Jesus for the redemption of the nations. So don't feel sorry for missionaries. Don't feel sorry even for the persecuted church. When they leave home and suffer in fellowship with Jesus for the redemption of the nations, they know God better than you do. There's a knowledge of God that can only be gained suffering with Jesus for the lost. We should have a holy jealousy for that. Apostolic nasty. Now, maybe you're saying, but I'm not Jesus, and the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. I'm glad you brought that up. Let's look at the life of Paul. We know that Paul was nasty before his conversion, making havoc of the church, imprisoning, killing Christians. And then we think that when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, that he got all nice and fluffy. But... What if Jesus just merely transformed Paul's carnal edginess to a consecrated edginess for Jesus and the gospel? Oh yeah, we know that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not easily provoked. Love bears all things. But he also wrote Galatians. You foolish Galatians! Who has provoked you that you so soon leave the gospel of grace? You might as well go the whole way and castrate yourself. Don't get mad at me, Pastor. That's in the Bible. John Mark, you're off the team. I rebuke Peter to his face. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, he says to the Jewish leader. Two men causing trouble in the church. Turn them over to Satan for the redemption of their souls. And the same guy that wrote... Chapter 13, two chapters later, as he's closing the epistle, says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. And all of those passages and all of those scriptures are in the context of Paul's sacred ambition to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to preach Jesus where he has not been named because he had apostolic nasty, a consecrated edginess, fixated on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all the nations. And Paul was willing to pay any price to see this job done. In Acts chapter 16, he goes to Philippi. 
The Lord had forbidden him to preach in Thyatira. And interestingly, Lydia, the first one to come to faith in Philippi, is from that very region that God had forbidden him to go to. Interesting how the Lord works. And then the brethren are saved. They meet in her house. A servant girl full of demons has a demon cast out. And the marketeers, their hope of profit gone, get upset at Paul. And they apprehend him and Silas and they take him to the magistrates. The magistrates, the text tells us, give them lashes, and then chain them to a prison wall. They're confined there. An earthquake happens. The Philippian jailer and his family are saved. And at the end of all of that, the magistrates send word to the Philippian jailer, release them and let them go in peace. Whereupon Paul responds, nope, I'm a Roman citizen. What's going on here in this text? In Roman and Greek culture, you had patrons and clients. Patrons had the power. Clients would render obedience. And at the beginning of the story, the magistrates have the power. They take Paul and Silas, strip them naked, lash them, and put them in prison. But Roman law said that no Roman citizen could be tried without due process. And they broke Roman law because they didn't know Paul was Roman. And so when he announces at the end of the story, after they've beaten him and imprisoned him without trial that he's Roman, they realize they've made a classic blunder and now there's a power inversion and all Paul has to do is report the magistrates to the governor. They lose their job, they lose their income, they lose their honor, they lose their status. So they come cap in hand, we're so sorry, didn't know you're Roman, will you please leave town? But my question for you is, why did Paul wait to play the Roman card? Why did he have to go through a beating and imprisonment? Why didn't he just stand on his privilege and say, nope, can't touch me, I'm Roman? I think the answer is given for us in the last verse of the text, chapter 16, where right before Paul leaves town, he goes back to Lydia's house and visits the brethren. Do you know what he's doing culturally? He's conveying his status on them. Do you see this woman? Do you see the church in her house? They're with me. I'm leaving town. But if you lift one finger against them, I'm coming back to town. I'll report you to the governor. Life, as you know, is over. This is my church. These are my people. Keep your hands off of them. Paid for in his own blood, suffering, sweat, and incarceration. And if Paul wouldn't have done that, no protection for Lydia and the Philippian jailer and his family do not get saved. So here's my question for you. What card of privilege are you willing to lay down for the sake of the nations? Is it wrong to be American, have an IRA, live in South Florida, maybe have a boat on the water or a second cabin on a lake near your children so there's free babysitting, sidewalks, parks, wonderful libraries? Is there anything wrong with being Roman or American? Not a thing. But is anyone willing to lay down the privileges of living in America for the nations? Is there anyone here who has a little bit of apostolic nasty? You are so consecrated to the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all peoples. You are so willing to suffer for the Lydias and the Philippian jailers of the world, that you'll lay down privilege 
and status for them. My wife and I were just on an island off of Arabia. It doesn't have any believers on that island. Some of the missionaries have been there for more than 20 years, laboring and working. Different agencies came together. There's just a handful of them. Very hostile, difficult, resistant environment. And they pooled their money and they bought a plot of land for a cemetery. They walled it, gave it a fence, a gate. They call it the everlasting ground because they want to be buried there. And just two weeks ago when we were visiting, they said, we have lived with these people for all of these decades in faith, pouring out our lives in the hope that one, many of them will come to Jesus. That when we die, we want to be buried amongst them. So by faith, on the resurrection morning, we will rise with some of them. That's apostolic nasty. We are centered this week on being a kingdom builder. And the heart of Jesus is that everyone be involved in his great mission. That everyone burns for his glory in all of the earth. And you might be asking yourself, how? How can little old me live with apostolic nasty? How can I live that consecrated life focused on Jesus and his global glory? I'm just a mom, a single mom. I'm retired. I'm divorced. I'm not called to go. I'm a student. I'm poor. I'm an immigrant. I don't have connections. I don't have power. There are many varieties of apostolic nasty. And each and every one of us can burn for Jesus if we will. Let me give you a third example from the scriptures. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. It is the story of Mary washing the feet of Jesus. This also happens in the last week of his life. This also happens in the context of Jesus, flint-faced, heading to the cross for the redemption of the world. And let me set the cultural context. For the last three and a half years, my wife and I have lived in Saudi Arabia. And like Palestine in the time of Jesus, it is a Semitic culture. There is quite strict segregation of the genders. Saudi houses, in fact, have a sitting room that's usually for men only. And sometimes that sitting room, called the majlis, the place where you sit, is even outside of the villa but attached to the house. Floor-level cushions ring the whole room. There is carpet and air conditioning and good lighting. It's where men and only men gather to drink coffee, eat dates, and review the events of the day or the times. Women are not allowed in this space. Servants will bring the treats to the door, and the youngest male will get up and bring that tray in and serve the coffee to all of the guests. This is hallowed ground for the men, at least. No woman of any sort would dare enter that space. And in comes Mary. And there she cries. And then she touches Jesus. This is scandalous. And she breaks open an alabaster jar that they figure was a year's salary or a whole dowry payment. And pours it upon him. Anoints him for burial. 
It's one of the most courageous acts in all of Scripture. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 26, wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, her story will be told. Apostolic nasty is rooted in what Mary did for Jesus. It is a love for Jesus that no one, no man, no culture, no rule is going to stop you from going into the presence of Jesus. And there you spend extravagantly so that the critics say, why this waste? And what you pour out on Jesus is affecting all the gospel across time and space in all the world. I started with the story about Don't Care a Damn and C.T. Studd. That phrase wasn't original to him. He got it from the soldiers in the First World War. In that brutal trench warfare where inches of ground were fought over time and again, those soldiers in the trenches sometimes had to go and thrust themselves upon the bayonets of the enemy so that their colleagues could step over their backs and gain new ground or throw themselves on the barbed wire as a human bridge so that their fellow friends could walk over them as a bridge into that hostile territory and they had to have this mentality I don't care a damn what happens to me as long as we win the mission and C.T. Studd appropriated that and said let's not care a damn about anything but Jesus and his glory in all of the earth Mary did not care a damn about her reputation. All she wanted to do was be near Jesus with giving everything she had and no promises of prosperity to follow. She gave everything and Jesus loved it. These are the type of people who build the kingdom. This too is apostolic nasty. You don't care what people think. And you don't care about your savings. You just give it all to Jesus. And some people think you're profligate. Some people think you're wasteful. Pastor mentioned that you're helping us build a church in Cairo. Cairo is 25 million people. Egypt's 108 million people. Just in one country. It's the center of the Arab world. And this church, similar to what Pastor Tom and Candy did in Vienna, is going to be a city set on the hill that will reach all the nations and then from there disciple them to reach all the nations. It's costing us $50,000 a year to rent our new property. The church is up and growing. We're out of space. $25 to buy a Bible, $50 to buy a chair. You can help us with this if you have a little bit of apostolic nasty. But don't do it for us. Do it for Jesus. And that type of sacrifice, Jesus never forgets. There's one more type of apostolic nasty. That's a kingdom builder. And I want to close with this. In the middle of World War II, Winston Churchill was the prime minister in Great Britain. The Nazis were on the shores of France and England alone stood out in Europe against the invasion. Churchill had a problem. Because the war effort was fueled by coal, and the coal that was dug out of the earth by the coal miners was in jeopardy because the coal miners went on strike. They weren't getting enough salary, they weren't getting enough attention. So Churchill had a problem. 
He visited the striking coal miners and gave a famous speech, which I will paraphrase. Essentially, he said this. We are going to win the war. And when we do, we're going to have a big old parade. And first in line in this parade will come the Air Force who fought off the Luftwaffe and won the Battle of Britain and they will be cheered. And then will come the Navy who delivered supplies to our allies around the world and they will be applauded. And then will come the Army who took the ground and spilt their blood and they also will be given thanks. But at the end of all of that parade will come a band of dirty, disheveled men that have soot on their faces and their clothes, the coal miners, and they will be asked, where were you in England's darkest hour? And they shall reply, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. We cut the coal that won the war. We just heard about almost a billion people in Asia Pacific that have never been reached with the gospel. There are 600 animist groups in the Amazon basin that are unengaged with the gospel. We have Muslim people groups and Hindus and secularists and Buddhists all around the world. 3.15 billion people in the world don't have access to the gospel even in our day. That's 42% of the world in 7,000 unreached people groups. And yet, despite those challenges, despite the fact that right now we're not even staying up with birth rates, I want to tell you, based on the authority of the Word of God, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we are going to win the war. And one day around the throne of heaven, there will be a multitude of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We're going to win the war. And when we do, we're going to have a big old parade. And the celebration that we enjoy this morning will be as nothing to the flags that are waved and the dances that will be danced and the praises that will be given to Almighty God. We're going to have a big old parade. First in line in that parade will be the apostolic fathers. And then will come the patristic mothers. And then will come the lions of the Middle Ages, and then will come the giants of the Reformation, and then will come the William Careys, and the Hudson Taylors, and the Adoniram Judsons, and the Billy Grahams, and all of them will be praised. But at the end of all of them will come an old Haitian grandmother from South Florida. And she doesn't have a lot of money, but she gets up every morning before the sun and she gets down on her knees and she prays for the nations of the world. And next to her will come a little boy from the Congo. He doesn't even have shoes. But he walks two kilometers three times a week to church and sings his little heart out because he believes that Jesus will rule and reign in all the earth. And he prays that Jesus shall reign wherever the sun doth its successes journeys run. And next to him will come an incarcerated pastor from the Chinese house church, been in prison, solitary confinement for the last 30 years, but she gets up and paces that cell and prays that the Lord of the harvest will raise up laborers for the harvest field. And they will be asked, where were you in earth's darkest hour? And they shall reply, we were down on our knees with our faces to the Lord. 
We prayed the prayers that won the war. That's also apostolic nasty. A consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all nations. Some of us will go and suffer and be rejected, imprisoned, bleed, and maybe die. All of us can give extravagantly, even to the point that others think is wasteful. And all of us can pray down on our knees in those quiet places that nobody sees but win the war. And all of us can burn for Jesus with a little bit of apostolic nasty. If this ministry is making an impact in your life, why not help us make an impact on the lives of others by partnering with us today? You can give through our CLC app or at clcftl.org forward slash give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe for more inspiring messages like this. Now go and be messengers of hope.